Today, I seriously thought about killing you. Premeditated murder. That was for Lori, right? Just to be clear. <laughs> I know the way you two get along. <laughs> Do it again. I've been listening to the album nonstop. I think I'm becoming Kanye West. <laughs> Ooh, that'll be a fun transition. You guys both have the same ego, for sure. Oh, shit. Oh, there's no way. There's no way. I love myself way more than Kanye loves himself. <laughs> I love you like Kanye loves Kanye. A lot of depression themes, yeah. especially with the Kid yeah. Cudi album, too. The Kids Do Ghost. I think Kid Cudi yeah. just got out of rehab, right? He's, like, super depressed. Well, he's coming out. He's coming out as bipolar in this album, right? Because that wasn't... I mean, I don't know how much that was, like, a publicized thing. I think oh, it was. Oh, Kanye, yeah. Well, yeah. but everyone kind of has known that. I mean, <laughs> once, I mean, he's been yeah. a bit off. I mean, for the record, I just want to say that I don't think about killing myself in case there's, like, a suicide I watch. do. <laughs> I do, <laughs> at least just, once a day. I have. We all have. But we got it under control. Everyone is fine, and there will be no TMZ moments for us. <laughs> I wake up. I look in the mirror. I tell myself I'm worthy. I pop a Lexapro. <laughs> Onwards and upwards. You know? It's a way to live. It's a way to live. (laughs) Kanye is getting kind of political. He tweeted, my MAGA hat is signed, followed by 30 fire emojis. Now, that is fitting, because that is how many times I would set that hat on fire. I think... Nothing says, like, I don't listen to hip-hop, like being surprised a rapper is Republican. I don't get some of these people, you know? Like they need to put down their like arcade fire vinyl and download SoundCloud or like Tidal, whatever the fuck those apps are that he uses, wave. The servers crash immediately. Like people who like hot bitches and money tend to see eye to eye on a lot. Like North Korea. I don't know why that is. <laughs> North Korea. The yeah. best part of this entire uh, ordeal is that we saw Dennis Rodman cry on CNN. Yeah, that was adorable. I- I knew things were going to change. I knew it. I, I was the only one. I never had no one to hear me. I didn't know one had to see me. But I took those bullets. I took all that. I took everything. Everyone came at me, and I'm still standing. And today is a great day for everybody. Singapore, Tokyo, China, everything. It's a great day. Wait, wait. <laughs> but all along, the best part for me is him wearing the podcoin.com shirt. <laughs> yeah, like, that's the best. Like, that is the best part. I mean, if you smoke enough weed, you cry very easily. Like, the last time I got that high, like, I think I cried at, like, a Geico commercial. Like, it <laughs> happens to everyone. Happens to the best of us. We're human. <laughs> those were real. Those were real. I feel my brother Trump tears. Exactly. I also wondered if Kanye was wanting to kill Kim <laughs> when he said, like, obviously. If, yeah. Well, that, but we want to kill all the people that we truly love. I mean, Kanye's picking some fucking truth right there. You can't really, like, deeply love someone without sometimes looking at them and being like, bitch, I really want to fucking kill you. Yeah, yes, isn't love, hate, and hate's love? That's definitely learned during marriage. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to be married to understand that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> do you think, do you think uh, D-Rod and uh, Trump will get the Nobel Peace Prize? Trump will get the Nobel Peace Prize and people are going to cry Trump will in the not. People are going to Tr- cry. Lori, <laughs> Trump was never going to get the, the yeah. Nobel Peace Prize. Hey, Obama got it for what What the fuck did Obama do to get the Nobel Peace Prize? He didn't do shit. He was black. Oh, yeah. Real. <laughs> Real talk. 
Obama was not MLK, and MLK was like a little bit of a communist, so y'all need to deal. Oh, what shit. if Dennis Rodman gets a Nobel Peace Prize? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Nobel Prize for D-Rod. Yeah. We need to start a change.org petition, like, stat. We need to start a hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be a hashtag, yeah. <laughs> Hi guys. So we're gonna be discussing the platypus panel that we recently had on June 6th at the Left Forum in New York City. Uh, the Left Forum, if you don't know it, is a large gathering, probably the largest on the East Coast, of uh, left groups, panel discussions. And this year, we hosted a panel called What is the DSA? On the panel is Jack Devine from the DSA, Jim Cregan from the Weekly Worker, uh, the organ of the CPGB. Well, he's not from the Weekly Worker. He contributes. Just, just It's important to clear he's contributor too, but he's not from the Weekly Worker. He's not officially part of the CPGB either. Uh, Communist Party of Great Britain, by the way, but he is definitely affiliated to them. Uh, and Aaron Haygood from Platypus. Who's joining us? So why did why did Platypus want to host this panel? Why did we want to ask the question, what is the DSA? Where is it going? Yeah, where is it going? So it got cut off of the title, um, but it's still in kind of the description. Right. It's supposed to kind of be about understanding what potential may or may not exist in the DSA, like as a phenomenon. And it asked the panelists, for example, to talk about whether or not the DSA's kind of latest bubble is a transformation of the DSA itself. It asked the panelists to consider how might a change in quantity become a change in quality? So is the massive increase um, in the DSA's number a qualitative change in what the DSA is or kind of what possibilities it has? And what lessons from history uh, might, if possible, help such an advance? So it's really asking speakers to reflect on uh, kind of the optimism that I think a lot of the left has had optimism after a certain fashion that a lot of the left has had about um, the DSA um, and to understand that as a phenomenon. So it's really asking them, like, what's your motivation, right, um, for, like, wanting to join the DSA, be in the DSA, um, and what is this organization actually doing politically, right? And so those two things um, are kind of supposed to be a play there. So you get, like, uh, Divine, who's you know, he kind of talks about um, uh, a bit of the, like, day-to-day, like, what the DSA is actually doing and his, like, experience in the DSA. And then you get somebody like Cregan, who's like, well, these are the good parts of the DSA, and here's the bad parts of the DSA, and here's the history of why there are these kind of inhibiting factors, um, and this is, you know, how we can understand the DSA. But I, I think, overall, there was a general resistance uh, to the question, um, because... Uh, uh, yeah. You know, people don't want the DSA to be one thing, right? Um, which I think is, like, the biggest... Well... That's how they talk Cregan about it. Cregan thought that... Yeah, right. But actually, like, Cregan did think the DSA was one thing. He he sort of treated the DSA as, like, an expression of Harringtonianism. Michael Harrington, the founder of the Democratic Socialists of America in 1982 just to make sure that's there yes like we've said in 
previous episodes of this podcast, and we've had clips of um, Michael Harrington speaking. So Cregan was uh, did treat the DSA as one thing, as this like expression of Harringtonianism, and was really insistent. Um, even said, look, like the Unity Caucus, which apparently is this Harringtonian uh, consolidated influence, I'm not sure, um, is part of the leadership. And then talked a lot about Francis Fox Piven, who ends up defending Obama and whatever. And so I, maybe we can talk about that because I completely agree, Aaron, like people within the DSA and it, they don't, they loathe the idea that you can say that they're one thing because precisely what they're trying to represent themselves as is an organization where you can kind of take your concerns coming from the left and like have a, an institution that can address those concerns and can be mobilized to address those concerns. And yet Cregan was like, no, the problem is that like we're not seeing this for what it really is. And what it really is is this like, anti-communist like at its root um and this harringtonian leftover um and so like i guess like do we find that argument convincing like you know cregan's critique of the dsa well the issue is that it's not whether or not it's convincing I and mean, sure but it might have been convincing 20 or 30 years ago maybe and that's a different question right is whether or not right his vision his singular vision of what the dsa is applies meaning that whether his critique is kind of like it seems to be historically bound to another moment not the present i think there for cregan there's like the dsa and the dsa so there's the dsa like the institution which he thinks is uh, uh you know the descendants of harrington um and that's like a problem but he also thinks, I mean, he has this thing he says, and this is how, you know, when I said that they, you know, don't like to say the DSA is one thing, I mean, that this is how they kind of express their distaste with the panel description, is that for Cregan, the DSA is in flux. Um, and this is the quantity quality change, I think, for him, is that, well, there's so many people in the DSA, um, and there's so many people, you know, it's, it's up for grabs, and so maybe... The Harringtonites uh, uh, won't win. So I, I guess maybe that was trying what I was trying to get at with Cregan because he has like on the one hand, basically he thinks that this like organizational institution of the Harringtonites is in the way, right? It's a holdover from an earlier period that's an obstacle to like what is developing for him. At least that was my read during the panel. I mean, what's one way you could take it? I also thought that it was like, well, look, you guys think that you don't have a vision, but you actually do. You just don't know it. Mm. Right. And he's like, and I'm informing you and what your actual political leadership within this organization is. And this is what it looks like. I think that's what kind of what he's getting at. But I think what he's missing is, you know, I think I agree with Lori. What he's missing is what the DSA is now, which I don't think is entirely defined. Um by by this particular generational inheritance of Harrington in the DSA because oh, it seems now like yeah and it seems like this divine character Jack Divine I shouldn't call him a divine character <laughs> um, Jack Divine I did kind of like the DSA um, what you thought he was hot oh I, I, I never saw I never saw the the video by the way I just I was like that's a great last name I'll take that. <laughs> Sorry, uh, sorry. <laughs> isn't Divine that drag queen in the um, 
That's what I was uh, thinking. Really <laughs> off track. <laughs> In the John Waters so divine character, so AKA God was saying, yeah. Is it this idea of this like multi-tendency sort of like big 10 organization have its roots in like 60s, 70s era movementism, you know, where it's almost like a political existentialism or something. Like it's just, who knows what it is for now. It's got to be determined by like the spontaneity of the people or something in the future. Like it's going to become something, but it's like, always on the verge of becoming something so that you can never really capture what it is and critique it thus yeah and it seems like aaron was trying to it seems like you aaron you're trying to hold him accountable to that in this in the sense that like that kind of ideological ambiguity by default like it, it if you see the democrats as a lesser evil you're tailless mm -hmm. whether you like it or not or whether you're conscious of it or not like that's the extent of what you're able to do yeah. maybe a way of thinking about it with cregan is that he fails to address um, what type of education is actually occurring in the DSA, because that's like really the question, right? So, okay, we have this Harringtonite old guard. Um, are they teaching their students? Like, obviously, to some extent, Cregan thinks that they aren't. Um, and that's true, right? It's not like, I mean, I've, you know, interacted with the youth DSA at the University of Chicago they're not getting schooled by anyone, um, much less the Harringtonite leadership. Um, uh, uh, but the way that he does it, Audrey, you're right, is like more of this. He elides the question of, okay, so what type of ideological education are they actually receiving? And so I think maybe that's the question of like the historical moment or like what is the DSA now? Um, you know, is it might have to do with from, you know, particularly like with regards to Cregan's presentation, um, uh, uh, that if there is some sort of opportunity, the way that all of these leftists think there's an opportunity in the DSA, perhaps it is kind of in this fact that there's this sort of breakdown in communication happening. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some sort of like ideology being imparted. And it also means particularly when it comes to like Cregan's remarks that, you know, it's the problem isn't just the Harringtonite leadership. Like you can't say, well, okay, the Harringtonite leadership is leading the DSA astray um, because the way that it kind of was shown, I think at the panel that the DSA is operating and the way that Cregan even kind of wants it to, to him, it even seems this way is that, um, the old guard is not actually uh, leading at all. Yeah, they're not leading. And so they're not providing any sort of ideological leadership, much less practical leadership. Yeah, I actually have to say that this is where like the presentation by Jack Devine, for me, just it just gave me flashbacks also of just of the new SDS and the kind of rhetoric of about sort of like we're a large umbrella organization. We're open to everybody. There is a left wing tendency um, and you get the sense of like there's a lot of stuff happening that's not contact connected at all to the history of the organization. And that there's the, just the enthusiasm of this growth and expansion and all the new things that are coming in. Uh, but it seems to me that it's very likely to just look at forward. These are exactly the people that might actually create the, the future crisis of the of the DSA. Right now, it's just like the problems are being avoided and they're being kicked down uh, history. And But these are likely the things, exactly the things that are going to bite them in the ass. But what you see is, right, this avoidance of trying to make anything cohesive in order to right, not turn people away. Well, the left wing here is the Refoundation Caucus, or not just here. 
and it's unclear why they're left wing. Like, I don't know why that terms necessarily use. They're like uh, pro forming a separate party. They're not. I, I think they're just responding to like the Seth Ackerman article differently that I think was the title of that, a blueprint for a new party. He cut, he talks about Tony Mazzocchi and the Labour Party and sort of learning lessons from that experience. But it's not clear as to why that makes them left. Like, <laughs> yeah. But it seems like the, the people who want to run candidates in the Democratic Party or independent parties or whatever, it seems like that tendency in the DSA has won out on the national level. Um, whether that's left or right, I don't know. I don't know what you'd call that, but that's where they seem to be right now. And and here they did. They had um, two Our Revolution candidates, Gail McLaughlin, who was interviewed in the PR recently, Platypus Review, um, who was a former like Naderite, and then uh, Javanka Beckles, who was almost successfully shut out uh, in like the jungle primary process in California recently. So the DSA, you know, they put all their resources into those two candidates and a few others statewide. And the ones that actually won or just in like solid red districts and it's kind of inconsequential. So I think a lot of this is in the air. I was just trying to ground it, I guess, in like their actual practice. Yeah. This came up in the panel. What is the practice of the DSA? And on the one hand, you have this electoral strategy that like some members, including members that were in on the panel, but also in the audience, um, were sort of rejecting that this was all that the DSA was, right? And even had like some glimpse of criticism about how maybe there was too much, too many resources spent on this part of what the DSA stands for, but that there was so much more and that, you know, including, and this is where I think I want us to get kind of concrete because I don't buy this shit about we can't define, like I think you can, if you take the sample size that we have of Jack Devine and we say, what was he saying? What was he saying? David Harvey. So that's one thing that he put out there. The other one is that Republican Party members and voters are fascists. He was also saying that you, he was also saying that you have these Brooklyn tenant unions, right? Several times. And that this, these civil society associations are, in some respects, more important to him than the electoral strategy. Um, and so maybe we can actually kind of try to grasp in, in those comments, right? Because I'm sure that if a DSA person listens to this, would be like, well, that's not all we are either. Um, sure, whatever. But like in this case where we had a panel in which we asked one of their members to clarify what, what the DSA was, this is what came out. What I brought up is, you know, what is the first thing that happens at a DSA meeting? So at the beginning of this school year, um, which would have been back in October, um, I and some Platypus Post members attended the very first meeting of the Youth Democratic Socialists of America at the University of Chicago, and um, the meeting was you sat in a circle and you talked about what issues you care about, and then they say, okay, and now we're going to do all of these issues. So somebody would say climate change, and they're like, okay, we can canvas this senator to do climate change. Um, I mean, rent control doesn't come up because it's young undergraduates in Chicago and not uh, people living in New York, but it could come up, right? Somebody could say, we want to deal with um, the sky-high rent um, prices in New York. And then they could say, okay, well, we can form some sort of organization to do that, um, and then we can go and we can ask, you know, in Chicago it would be like your alderman or something, but, you know, the mayor or the Democratic Party machine that runs New York City, um, to, you know, we can pressure them to kind of give us these different things. Um, and so there's a, 
there's something we read in Platypus. I always forget where this comes from. It's one of the introductions that somebody wrote. Um, maybe it's Peter Pruce's where he says that Marxism um, started off uh, as a appeal to social justice, but actually had to be something more, um, which was like freedom. Like it couldn't just be an appeal for social justice, but it actually had to call for freedom and for the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, and uh, so what is the character that all of these kind of discontents with capital take within the DSA, as kind of Audrey has pointed out, um, they take the character of kind of petty bourgeois discontents yeah. with how the Democratic Party is running um, uh, the city or America or whatever else. Um, and so what happens um, because of the practical consequences of like what the DSA is practically um, what you get, and this is my argument, is the subordination of any sort of call for proletarian politics um, to these different uh, petty bourgeois discontents, um, which kind of run the show. Um, yeah. And you, know, you can see that ideologically, too, I think, and this is why it's David Harvey and not Marx, um, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, because it's, you know, we want the state to deal with distribution. Um, we don't want, you know, to even think about the dictatorship of the proletariat or, like, what is proletarian politics, right? That question. Um, and so that's kind of the argument that I was trying to make. There's so much taken for granted, like between like the the four of us right now on this on this call, because we have had this platypus education. And so like this is kind of what maybe we can use the rest of the time to kind of really break the fuck down. Okay, so petty bourgeois democratic discontents. Like, what do we mean by this? Like, why Why is it that we can say... And I think that you actually, like, you, you obviously you said it, but, like, why was it misread? I think it's because when people hear petty bourgeois or they hear, they hear middle class, they think that you're attacking them on the basis of what their economic background is. Their income is. or something. Right, like... Jack Devine yeah. thought that. He thought I was attacking him for being from Westchester. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I you're like, funny. no! It's like, it's not about you. Exactly. And I think that what, what you were trying to clarify is this issue of like progressivism, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe like one of the ways in which we can try to like pry this open is this Medicare for all argument yes. that he gives us. Um, so like at one point he, at one point Aaron though, he kind of does understand what you're saying because that's when he finally like responds to you by defending the Medicare for all. Uh, he at one point he goes, oh, that makes sense. Okay, um, and then and then he's like, okay, but the, but what is the Medicare for all policy? Like, what does it do? Like, working people would benefit from this. And what I'm saying is that like w working people right now don't have the time to educate themselves politically. And so the argument is that providing them with these policies, providing with these kinds of reforms, would then allow them to potentially in the future or what may have you be part of a quote unquote more proletarian politics. Even though he didn't really say proletarian but what he meant was as he said it what i mean is socialism right he was like well when i say the left i mean socialists mm -hmm. and so that's the idea and then your response to that was in terms of the who whom question like is the medicare for all then being used as a way to bring working class people into your political project so that they can be part of a project for socialism or is all being subordinated to this program of medicare for all um, and so could you maybe, like, I kind of just want you to go into it and explain why is it different to be a progressive 
than to be a socialist. Really, what I was trying to think about is, okay, well, the ultimate goal the DSA says they have is socialism. And so is this reform, right, this call for Medicare for all, this tactic and strategy that they're using of, you know, organizing for Medicare for all going to help them uh, seize state power? I think that was really the question. And so, like, when it comes to, like, progressivism, uh, the whole idea is that, you know, the state like stays as it is, you know, um, or it just gets like it can handle your problems better. Like that's what you need is you need a state now that can provide Medicare for all in the style of like the NHS or something or Sweden, whatever the hell they think it's going to be. In that case, what you get is, you know, and I was thinking of um, really, I was thinking of Bonapartism, right? So Bonapartism refers to Louis Bonaparte, um, who's the grandson of Napoleon Bonaparte. Nephew. Nephew. Um, and he is kind of famous for being elected as president of the Second Republic of France after the Revolution of 1848. And then four years later, he declares himself dictator for life, which is also uh, ratified by public referendum. So people really support it. And what Louis Bonaparte does, um, kind of according to Marx, is that the state becomes a tool for managing the crisis of capitalism. So he, a socialist, because he's a socialist, he's a, a St. Simonian socialist, um, puts down the revolution. He puts down like the workers and he brings in the Junkers, who are these really conservative reactionary forces from uh, Prussia to crush the workers' revolution. And also even some of the you know, bourgeoisie in the country. So the idea is that, okay, the state is able to, like, manage this crisis. You know, the peasants and the uh, proletariat end up being led by Louis Bonaparte. I mean, first we have to understand it as a historical phenomenon after the 1848 crisis, where the state needs to step in above civil society to begin with. And it's not only conditioned by what the left think of it, but it's like this this sort of this figure. Uh, and it's definitely not just about him, but the politics that he represents is that he's going to be for everybody, that he's in his he's playing a card of everybody's playing to everybody's interest, but actually not fulfilling anybody's interest. Right. Is the need to sort of like this historical need of the crisis of bourgeois society, the crisis of liberal democracy the crisis of the Industrial Revolution, the crisis of capitalism that requires um, this political phenomenon to come and claim the politics and the needs to meet the needs of everybody, but actually not meet the needs of anybody, and yet be the only sort of stabilizing force of this crisis of capitalism. And like what we have since is just different forms of Bonapartism. And the point of Bonapartism, really from a Marxist perspective, is that it's inextricably related to the idea of the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is why just like liberal democratic demands are not enough. Uh, if are just being carried out by center or right-wing parties, it's just like the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat, meaning the actual overthrow of this form of state, of this political phenomenon, right? right? So the contrast to wanting the better guy in the ring of the state is the dictatorship of the proletariat, insofar as what you're saying by the dictatorship of the proletariat is not put a better candidate in charge of the state, right. but actually the desire to, A, do away with the state altogether, Yes. And do away with capitalism, which... And also to subordinate certain interests, because what you get in, like, Bonapartism, like Louis Bonaparte, or also, I mean, a great example of this is, like, uh, FDR's New Deal, right? You just have all of these competing sort of interest rackets, um, 
that are lobbying for different, because it's not like the New Deal is rolled out as one swift plan, right? Um, you have, you know, the DSA types or whatever, or, you know, they would imagine themselves as kind of these different lobbying groups um, who are saying, well, we need to do this or we need to do that. Um, and so it's really kind of a hodgepodge of all of these different interests being like met, but also not met, right? So the idea that, you know, Louis Bonaparte's for everyone, um, that- uh, uh, For the, the state, people. Yeah, yeah, he's for the people. Um, and that he's, you know, really like adjudicating all these different interests. Um, and so it's, you know, rackets, right? It's like what Adorno would say is that you just have these different interest rackets that are kind of like fighting to have their interests uh, met um, through the state. And that what does that do? Well, that th that is exactly like petty bourgeois middle class discontents or whatever is all of these different interests who go to the state in the Great Depression and say, hey, FDR, we need this. We need that. We need these jobs. We need to have jobs for actors and we need to have you know, these unions need to be okay, even though everything's yeah. going to shit, um, yeah. you know, whatever else. So the DSA likes to pretend that because they're democratic, no interests are being subordinated, right? That this means everybody gets a hearing. Everybody gets a hearing. Um, mm -hmm. But this just isn't the case. Because what you do have, even within the DSA, is you have all of these different competing interests. And, you know, the DSA now wants to become one of the competing interests between the in, uh, within the Democratic Party machine. And so, you know, what happens is that, well, whatever, you know, kind of arbitrary interest wins out, wins out. Um, and uh, proletarian politics will be subordinated to it. I was just going to say, like, again, maybe to try to say the same thing that you said in the panel, but translating it a bit. So what we're saying is that the DSA is Bonapartist in the sense of a kind of uh, Woodrow Wilson and FDR type of progressive nostalgia, like nostalgia for that kind of relationship to the state in American history. And that's the way in which they're Bonapartists. I would at least claim it, because I think this is the issue that you kept. Basically, what you were trying to critique is their progressivism and that you were trying to differentiate a kind of progressive style politics to socialists um, but it wasn't getting through because they had a bit of tunnel vision about what their socialism was supposed to be about and that they considered their socialism to be this kind of progressivism and they didn't see the distinction so i i appreciated i don't know who was it from the audience uh it made it may have been douglas lane uh who just said okay what does this have to do with the dictatorship of the proletariat um, which is, I think, when maybe Jack Devine started to understand that you were trying to create a polemic against subordinating everything to this issue of social democratic style reforms. I'm trying to find the language, I'm trying to understand why your language got lost. But I think the misunderstanding it, it, like provides us with some truth about what this organization is capable of digesting. Like right. when we say things and they hear other things, right? Like we have to try to yeah. comprehend what the gap is about, right. which I don't no, think is good. just a personal fault of this guy. Um, Jack Devine also, like he repeatedly defended uh, running candidates in the Democratic Party as a tactic despite the fact that Aaron Yu at the outset very clearly said you didn't object to that as a tactic. Yeah. And if like running those candidates got us to socialism, fine. Um, and, you know, and your question I thought was really great, you know, when you said, okay, well, if you want to engage in electoral politics for people to take you seriously, why not utilize the GOP for that same end? Exactly. Yeah. And it was really was telling moment. that in fairness to Jack Devine, he didn't just say they were all Nazis and, you know, he defended himself there. But he did say that the base of the Republican Party are essentially fascist, whatever that means. And then he said, 
you know, that the people who vote yeah. for in the primaries are above 65 and they're small business owners or whatever. And then, Aaron, you pointed out, well, actually, the vast majority of people in red states are like working class. And then he says, well, they don't vote. And it's like, okay, so you're not even trying to appeal to these people. You're just writing them off as people who don't vote. And it's like, actually, presidential, like general elections are usually determined by whoever can get the most, you know, non-voters to turn out to the polls. So it's that it just betrayed a total lack of seriousness for actually engaging in, in the electoral arena. Um, if you're not actually trying to mobilize, he's like point blank, not trying to mobilize the working class because they're in red states. Don't you want to win? Like, don't you run politicians so that you can win? So he's abdicated both, basically. So Divine has said, well, no, we don't want to win because we want to organize people. But no, we don't want to organize people um, if they're bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they can't be. I think that we should get people in the DSA and ask them the question, what's socialism? Like, because we got this mishmash answer that was like, well, we read Harvey and we have these tenant unions and we're not all about electoralism. And you're mischaracterizing us when you think that we're just the shell for the Democratic Party. You're mischaracterizing us when you think that we're just going to support these candidates. This is not really part of our long term vision. And these other civil society associations are more like show more about what we're about. And so we should just like take them at their word and just sit them down and say, okay, like, what is your strategy when you support Medicare for all? What is your strategy when you support the tenant unions? What is your strategy when you support this? Like, how is this helping you build socialism? We tried to do that at U Chicago, but it didn't really work out. And what happened? Well, I think the members we got at the DSA were actually just too young. Because we had somebody who was like a DSA, YDSA person. He didn't want to say anything because it was like, okay, what is socialism? We had him, we had another student, we had somebody from, it wasn't just DSA people. Uh, we had like Johnny Mercer from the Socialist Party of Great Britain. We had uh, Christian Clow from the Socialist Party USA. Um, and then we had Christopher Good from U Chicago Student Action, which is related to the People's Lobby, so kind of like an Our Revolution type thing. Um, and yeah, Adrian Mandeville, who was from the YDSA, just had surprisingly little to say um, about what socialism was. And I think this is kind of reflective of the lack of organizational education that actually goes on, particularly on this topic, which kind of is never broached, at least in YDSA meetings. Like when we went, a kid tried to ask that question and was told that now is not the time to ask what socialism is. Um, so I think maybe that's why it didn't work out. No, a similar thing happened at Cal. There were some students that were brought into like a DSA meeting and they just asked basic questions about like, what is socialism or you know, what's the difference between um, social democracy and socialism, that sort of thing. And there was there was a DSA speaker that tried to give some kind of an answer. It was really brief, though, and it was like an hour and a half long meeting. And 99% of it was just about canvassing. So it's very little theoretical discussion. But the questions from the audience overwhelmingly were trying to clarify these issues. So Yeah, so I think there's a need there, too. So it could, you know, have, there could be like, I think there is room for us to actually intervene. Like this, it would be an intervention to take, you know, maybe some more senior members of the DSA or people who are involved in like the, because I know in a lot of the different DSA chapters, they have political education committees, you know, so try and get somebody from one of those. We can't be cranks like Jim Cregan. Like we need to actually try to understand what these people are trying to do, 
even if they're confused about what they're trying to do, and even if that they think they're in an organization with no actual leadership and without an ideology, we need to like get them to say it because Jack Devine did start to say well, it. Well, and there's a real, like, I guess what I'm trying to mark out is that there's a real organizational need that they have. Um, like they do have, and I think this is what Audrey was kind of talking about is they do have um, these like students um, or members who are coming and they want some sort of education on some level. Um, and the way that they get it is just like really almost like on the slide yeah. <laughs> is what it seems. Yeah. I mean, they do have these night classes and stuff, but I think in terms of how the education is happening, it's not really organized in any particular way, even though they do have that like demand. And so there really is like a gap felt between like the older and the newer generation um, mm -hmm. in terms of education um, and that that will be filled somehow. But the gap um, can be an opportunity. Where we could, exactly, yeah, where we could intervene right. and make that's that right. like an actual object to learn from. Yeah, or at least make it conscious, you know, I'm not saying like, I don't, I don't think that Platypus is out to convince any particular DSA member one perspective or another, but it would be nice to have this organization have some self-consciousness of its ideological inheritance. If we could do that, then that'd be good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Aaron, for joining us. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. special segment dedicated to the Mexican election, which is coming up July 1st, so very, very soon. Uh, I'm here with Audrey. Hi, Audrey. Hey, what's up? And Pam. Hey. <laughs> and our special guest is Marco Torres, which is a member of Potipus living in Chicago, and he's kind of a specialist on Mexico, and we have him on to let us know a little bit about what's happening with the left in Mexico and uh, why is this a significant election. Uh, hey, Marco. Hi, how are you? 
Hi. Okay. So uh, we have mostly, I think, a lot of questions <laughs> for you now because we don't really know. Um, but one of the reasons why I wanted to do this segment was because there's actually quite a lot of important Latin American elections this year. Colombia also has a big election. Brazil has a big election. And Mexico being with the border to the U.S. and everything with the Trump wall and everything, I thought it would be an interesting moment. And with the candidate Lopez Obrador, which is extremely popular, we kind of wanted to know a little bit more about his background and kind of like where the left is at and what are his real chances of winning on top of like, yeah, what can we expect if he were to win? Mm -hmm. So maybe we can start a little bit with the party that he's part of. Uh, right. Uh, well, uh, it, it's a new party. Uh, it was founded after his uh, electoral defeat of 2012, when he was still running with the PRD party, the Partido de la Revolución Democrática, party of the revolutionary, no, the democratic revolution. And um, this, this party is not really, or hasn't been until now, uh, a real political party in the sense that it is uh, established and has a base or anything like that. It's it's really his party. And it's been drawing since 2012, a growing uh, number of people from other political parties and from different, uh, you know, uh, social movements, etc. But it's still a very young party that doesn't really have uh, any other stated, you know, many, any really articulated purposes beyond, uh, you know, getting Lopez Obrador elected. And it's quite common for new parties to emerge like this in Mexico. What made this one possible? Uh, it is common. It's just uncommon that they um, have any impact. Uh, uh, there's always uh, been, you know, Mexico was uh, dominated for by uh, by a single, you know, it was a, a single party political system up until the uh, 1990s. And um, there had always been uh, small political parties, and, and this continued on into uh, the you know the democratic age uh, uh, in Mexico. Uh, after two thousand, you have a multi-party competition, but it had really been only uh, three parties that had uh, re had been real contenders, uh, with a kind of you know every election cycle creating new sort of uh, new parties based around single candidates. The thing is that uh, Lopez Obrador has had has been uh, um, a figure for a long time, and his uh, separation from the PRD was a, was a dramatic thing that uh, you know made this uh, new party a, a, a much bigger deal. So, because you are saying that this new party is so much about Obrador, mm -hmm. um, and maybe like not everyone out there, I mean, I certainly know a very superficial amount about this character. And we read, as in preparation for this conversation, a dissent article uh, called A New Hope from Mexico. And it coined this term, or I guess it just had this term that's been coined, Lopez Obradorismo. Mm -hmm. And so what, so what does it stand for, like, the support for Obrador? Like, what does it mean? Uh, well, it, he's not really, like, he doesn't advertise himself as... Uh, a leftist uh, in the socialist sense. He's not a, le uh, a socialist. He sees himself as being in the uh, sort of, uh, in a kind of democratic tradition and in a kind of, you know, uh, he's like a man of the people. That's that's sort of what, what Lopez Obrador stands for. And at this point, there was more of a new, like an anti-neoliberal content to Lopez Obradorismo back in, 
his uh, uh, the other big election when he, you know, pretty much won and it was taken away from him. But it was like a very tight race. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of beside the point whether he won. Is this the 2012 election? Uh, and back, back, back. Yeah, 2000. No, 2012 uh, was, a uh, you know, he clearly lost in 2012. 20, okay. t- 2006, he was more of an anti-neoliberal in, his, in the okay. way that he talked. But now it's really just this notion that there is uh, a, an, um, a, an oligarchy across all three big parties. Not his, but mm-hmm. the PRI, PAN, and PRD. Uh, in Mexico, there is this mm-hmm. sort of uh, oligarchy mm-hmm. that has positioned itself that is uh, mm-hmm. sort of completely corrupt and has totally stopped serving the country. Uh, and mm-hmm. he uh, will essentially uh, sort of uh, uh, drain the swamp of these people. And that is mm-hmm. the project. It's a, it's a, it's a swamp draining mm-hmm. project. Uh, mm-hmm. There is there's very little sort of critique of uh, capitalism or, or any of that kind of stuff. It's really... Uh, uh, an attack on the uh, uh, political establishment. So also, because we haven't mentioned it, he's obviously leading in most of the polls by right. quite a lot, correct? People are already talking about the other campaigns uh, in past tense at this point. It's over. It's it's He has like, he's ahead by like uh, 30 points. Uh, yeah, his his biggest competitor points. just got like, you know, he just got like this uh, uh, media... Uh, uh, extermination. Like he was just wiped out by a series of scandals that just came out. I mean, it was stuff that was being held back. But when it when it appeared that he was not the 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 uh, you know ahead, uh, you know his own people have sort of uh, 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 turned against him and and ruined his campaign. This is Ricardo Anaya. Ricardo Anaya. That's right. And you know the the pre candidate, uh, uh, the the pre is so unpopular today that. Um, he's basically running saying that he's not actually a member of his own party. His whole uh, thing is, is that, like, this, this uh, Mead guy, uh, that's, this is his name, this is weird sort of English name. Mead is basically running as somebody that's, uh, who's uh, uh, been a responsible technocrat, has served uh, multiple administrations, and will, uh, unlike Lopez Obrador, uh, do everything to prevent... Uh, a coming catastrophic recession. Okay. Uh, so he's just running on, a, like literally running as a, as a kind of uh, a caretaker of sorts. Uh, Anaya was, was, was a more interesting campaign against Lopez Obrador, but he's done. He's done, like the last couple of weeks was this amazing just collapse of his campaign, very spectacular and dramatic. Mm-hmm. One of the other things, I was in Mexico just two or three weeks ago, and I took advantage, I mean, I, I read a bit of Proceso magazine, mm-hmm. but I, when I talked to, like, cabbies or workers about the election, most of them, everybody I talked to, it's single, not a single person said something different. They all said that, yes, Lopez Obrador was leading, but that they don't think they're going to let him win. It's sort of the powers that be, the status quo will not possibly let him win. They're, the elections are going to be rigged. How serious are these kinds of uh, claims? I, I was worried about that stuff until a couple of weeks ago. And what we have in the last couple of weeks is a kind of, uh, there's been a series of sort of meetings between the, the sort of um, private sector organizations. and all. There's been all these like sort of, uh, peace gestures between Lopez Obrador and the establishment. They're sort of accepting that he's that he's next, and that they're going to try to play nice with him. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So, what is he really sort of what ma- what has made him so popular this time around besides draining the swamp? 
or, or that's really it people are just fed up with the status quo well it's the thing is that that uh uh you know mexico has been in a kind of slow not even that slow. well i mean in, in the last 12 years especially uh, uh uh have been a kind of uh slow collapse of of the political establishment or or even a kind of a, a failed or failing state process and it's been very uh it's been something that everybody's been feeling and you know there's been a, a just a, a continuous decline in living standards uh, uh just uh, very low growth uh continuous scandals of from uh, politicians of every party uh, dealing with, you know, corruption, influence trafficking, sort of uh, embezzlement, that kind of stuff. And, of course, uh, all of this is, is, is intimately connected with, uh, with a drug war or, or, you know, which is yeah. what, it, what it's called. But really the, the kind of uh, the rising violence, political gangster violence that's, that's been uh, it's just exploding, really, in, in Mexico uh, uh, since uh, 2006, especially. Yeah, there was that article run around recently, but that even since the election started or the election season started in November, mm -hmm. there's been over 100 candidates that have been killed already. Right. Of every party, too. It's, it's just because yeah. because uh, uh, the, the the politics at a regional uh, local level is so extremely violent now. Uh, uh, and, and, and every single, you know, every single person every uh, uh every person in any kind of position of power has to deal with the fact that there is this huge business in mexico uh these 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 essentially corporations the cartels that are dangerous and can kill you uh so yeah. of course in election time there's a lot of you know uh, uh sort of uh, a conflict at a regional level and uh, it's totally apolitical. It's just conflict at a regional level that now has these little private armies and stuff like that that will kill people. Uh, this is a kind of new development in Mexican politics. So can I ask, the, this coalition of the PRI and the PAN and the PRD, like, does it mean then that there's a kind of crisis in the status quo? Or is this just like, like why, does it take, why did it take so long to make this... Uh, an official alliance across this political parties, like why now? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, there is, there is a, it, that is, as I said, a, a real crisis of the political system. I mean, the the three parties, uh, uh, PRI, PAN, and PRD, you know, with uh, PRI being the kind of uh, the old center party, the the PAN being an, uh, 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 the sort of Catholic right wing party, and the PRD being the I wouldn't even say left party. It was seen as a left party, especially in the 90s. They are not going to be around very much. I mean, especially the PRD. That one is done. Uh, uh, but essentially, uh, uh, there's been a kind of... They, they have been involved in so many uh, scandals. They have been so sort of uh, uh, irresponsible in their, uh, in, in their positions of power that what we have seen is just... Uh, a complete delegitimization de of the whole political establishment, just at, at a popular level, like at a, at, a, at a ground level. Nobody believes mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. any of the mm -hmm. political parties. I mean, that's really where uh, Lopez Obrador draws his strength, that he's mm -hmm. an outsider. It's almost happening too late, too. Well, meaning it just feels like, why did it take so long? I would ask, why has it taken it so long, in fact, for these parties to be legitimized? I mean, the situation has been fucked up for well over a decade. Well, sure. I mean, I mean, yeah, but like the political context 
then was very different. I mean, it is it is a situation where I mean, especially since the 1980s. Yeah, I was going to say 85 was the earthquake. Right, with 1985 earthquake, you know, those very symbolic, but just with uh, uh, you know the 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 transition in in Mexico from a kind of post-revolutionary style sort of patronage of social organizations, this kind of a, a, a bureaucratic party uh, tied to these social movements that went all the way to the revolution, ran out of steam in the 1970s and 1980s. And uh, there was the, the, the narrative in the 80s and 90s was this transition to multi-party democracy. And uh, that, that the first time the presidency was won by an opposition party was 2000. Trend, that there was this sort of sense of the transition of to, to democracy that was happening in the in the 80s and 90s, and the problem was that in 2000, uh, you know, during in the 20, 2000 to 2006, 2006 to 2012 uh, uh, periods, um, and the, and especially. The last one, the 2012 to uh, uh, 2018 uh, presidential period, there's been a kind of, um, um, you know, this the, the, the disillusion with this uh, uh, democratic uh, multi-party um, uh, competition has been extreme. Like the 2012, the PRI won again because people were so disenchanted with with party competition. I was just going to ask, uh, the Pink Tide's generally considered to have started in 1999 uh, when Chavez took power in Venezuela. Um, and the author of the Dissent article said that, you know, arguably when Obrador, uh, pardon my pronunciation, I'm white, uh, when he took power, <laughs> when he was a uh, mayor of Mexico City in 97, um, the author says that he actually should be included in the pink tide. Would you, Marco, would you agree with that assessment or would you take issue with it? Uh, every one of these uh, uh, sort of pink tide, you know, governments was um, very, were, they were all very different from each other. And really the one that everybody thinks of is, is of course, uh, Chavez. And uh, yeah, it's very, very different from, from, from Chavez. Uh, this, you know, Chavez was uh, uh, a military guy and uh, 2000 to 2005 kind of uh, high like high pink tide era each of these uh, uh, governments was uh, very different from they, they were all very different from one another so I mean in that sense what you could say like sure AMLO is part of this sort of anti-neoliberal turn in, in uh, Latin American politics but that's you know that's not something that like Mexicans cared about, you know, it's more like a kind of know, US perspective to like group all these people together or something. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I mean, there's a, it's, it's a totally different kind of phenomenon. I mean, um, there, the, you know, Lopez Obrador was not, um, uh, was, did not come from the military like Chavez did. He, he, not only did he never, uh, attempt a coup like Chavez did. He is actually a, a very kind of um, uh, a moderate politician when it comes to his, uh, the way that he talks about, like, you know, people acting in the streets, you know, people doing things in the streets. I mean, he's not for any kind of uh, uh, sort of on the ground popular movementism or anything. It's He's really, um, he really sees himself more as, 
uh, someone who is fighting corruption and someone who uh, uh, comes from uh, many years in, in, within the establishment and someone who's like been fighting within the establishment against the corruption first as a young uh, uh, you know uh, activist uh, uh, or militant of the of the PRI, of the PRI during the time of the single party system um, and then after the 90s in the PRD and after 2012 in his own political party. Uh, that's really his, his whole thing. You could say that he's coming from an electoral party politics or electoral politics, slowly sort of building up his career as a politician through elections. Right. Yes, he has, he has built his career as a politician and uh, he has just been in the public eye for a long time as someone who, I mean, this is really how he is perceived and some, as someone who is kind of incorruptible, right? Like every other single, every single other Mexican politician is just surrounded. It's just like so easy to sort of just find all these ways that they've uh, used their power in, in, in all kinds of sort of, uh, uh, you know, to, to do all kinds of business, to, to sort of take advantage of all these uh, uh, opportunities for self-enrichment that politics gives you. And he really, uh, you know, as far as people know, uh, is, is, is totally clean. Uh, uh, there's a kind of uh, austerity uh, uh, to him, a kind of a sort of Republican virtue, I would say, is his, his style more than populism. Okay, I'm going to ask just something specific because I think it needs to be clarified. Mm -hmm. So... This issue of what Lopez Obradorismo stands for. Mm -hmm. So Marco has just said that, you know, you can't really like talk about the pink tide in this kind of like homogeneous way. It means different things, la la la. But then there is this claim being made consistently throughout his political career that he represents the people, right? So even like when he's part of the mm -hmm. PRD, he helps to institute these electoral reforms through this Instituto Federal Electoral. And the appearance, or at least, mm -hmm. or the strategy is that, like, you're democratizing state government, um, and in that way, you're, like, opening up government for the people. Mm -hmm. And, like, so now he's, like, a caricatured version of that, is what I kind of hear you saying. And that it's, while it has the kind of remnants of a kind of, I guess, I'm not sure, anti-neoliberalism, uh, insofar as, is he still vocal about NAFTA? Like, was he vocal about NAFTA during his um, campaign? He, in the 90s, well, the, the, okay, so there's two questions there. Okay. The first, um, uh, talking about this democratization, this was all the parties were in favor of this democratization. Like the, 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 the PRI had, uh, was, was split. There was all these other parties coming around. And it was all about opening up electoral competition to sort of legitimize all political parties, including the PRI, because the story really was that you know, this is the 90s. This is like like post, uh, uh, you know, this is like right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was this idea that these uh, 20th century dictatorships were not going to be uh, uh, tolerated anymore. And the PRI was one of them. And the PRI sort of uh, willingly, uh, uh, along with the other parties, uh, went toward electoral reform and all these things. Um, and it was actually not Lopez Obrador. It was more this other figure that I mentioned earlier, Cuauhtémoc uh, Cárdenas, that was the big proponent of these reforms. Lopez Obrador was still kind of early in his career at this point. This is like mid-90s. 
And then the, the other question was about the... Well, you said, uh, Marco, I think you had mentioned to... Um, you had mentioned that uh, Lopez Obrador had come out and agreeing with Trump on the fact that maybe NAFTA agreement was not a good agreement, and even for Mexico. Right. I mean, the whole uh, left of center in Mexico, really, uh, uh, I'm not talking about the far left. Uh, everybody thought the NAFTA was a really bad deal in Mexico because it was sort of uh, destroying all, all these sort of, um, you know, this, I wouldn't really call it a welfare state, but all, but all these sort of uh, uh, ways that people use this kind of state patronage to survive. Uh, uh, and it was, a, it, it was, you know, people knew that it was going to create uh, real impoverishment and 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 um and it did and it did it did um but uh you know the previous system was already in crisis uh lopez obrador was of course one of these people that opposed nafta of course at this point the mexican economy is all dependent on this nafta relationship with the united states so so lopez obrador is not at this point talking about getting rid of nafta but he understands that uh uh trump that that he, I think he's going to sort of get along with Trump in the sense that there's going to be a kind of preference for bilateral uh, commercial treaties and uh, uh, a kind of, you know, he's a kind of Mexico first guy. He mm-hmm. wants to uh, make a deal for the Mexican people uh, while, and that is that is a kind of unique thing at this point because the current generation of, 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 uh, of politicians, the current uh, political establishment in Mexico is is completely about sort of sacrificing everything, all political capital or all kind of uh, any kind of uh, national economic interest of any sort, you know, sacrificing this to international pressures and to the, you know, just to sort of like fit in in this sort of uh, G7 NAFTA kind of international order. Uh, uh, you know, uh, AMLO is a, a pragmatic politician who, you know, it was against these things when they started. He understands that they can't just simply be destroyed, mm-hmm. but will probably be willing to negotiate something in terms of national interest, mm-hmm. which is something that hadn't been going on uh, uh, in the last, uh, uh, you know, 12, 18 years. Mm-hmm. I've seen him compared to Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. but if he has more substantially in common with Trump policy is that comparison more just like a formal comparison because of his ties to like center-left parties? Right. It's it's his ties to center-left parties and also his kind of uh, um, sort of uh, progressive grandpa kind of thing. Uh, uh, they're both these 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 sort of <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, you know, they're 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 uh, sort of. Uh, you know, lovable old guys who, who want the best for the people and, and are sort of morally upright types, you know? Uh, uh, so Very paternalistic. Uh, there is a paternalism to it, definitely. Uh, uh, yeah. um, and, and people do have, uh, there is a kind of paternalistic, uh, even avuncular uh, sort of uh, cult, <laughs> nice. cult of personality around around somebody like Lopez Obrador that's similar to this, the the things people feel here uh, uh, for Bernie Sanders. Finally. <laughs> what the hell is a chachalaca? Cállate chachalaca. Oh, that's like, a, that's like a, some kind of noisy bird uh, uh, that 
it's like a loud it's like a, a thing you say to a child when they're being a loud mouth or something you call them this noisy bird and it's also a very old-fashioned expression uh, uh that is uh that was i think he i mean he calculates it so it's appealing to uh the <laughs> to to the kind of uh of folkloric uh the folk ways you know uh while uh you know making the the sort of the technocratic order angry or something like that uh so it was a gaffe <laughs> it's it's, well, it's folksy right. it's a folksy kind thinking. of thing expression Okay, yeah, so I mean, he does present himself as this sort of man of the people mm-hmm. and that's going to drain the swamp. That's, that's right. That gives me a better image. Absolutely. Well, one, one thing that I do want to say is that he is saying that he's going to drain the swamp, but the thing is that the, the swamp really is drying up. Like, it is really being drained, and his campaign is drawing that energy uh, uh, because it's going to be really interesting come, like in the next uh, you know few years because the party system in Mexico has collapsed. All other parties have collapsed. Right now, people are actually worried that you have a one-man political party where the whole party is just about this one guy and all the other parties are going to lose all power. So he's going to have like a kind of dictatorial position now. Not really because, you know, I don't think that's actually what's going to happen, but people are worried about uh, uh, um, how much the other parties are losing and how this new party is just taking over the whole thing. And what are the prospects of the left in this context? Meaning, I just have to still ask the mm-hmm. question, okay, maybe this would still be very important and improve the quality of lives of people and set Mexico in a better course. But yeah, what does this really do? How is any, anything of this going to be an opportunity for the left? Uh, yeah, and, and or is there an opening for the left or this is just kind of like a moment to try to stabilize the country? Well, the Mexican the Mexican left is weird. It doesn't have the same kind of a, a culture of of kind of you know student politics and uh, little groups and socialist groups and stuff like that. That the U.S. has has a, a, another very different sort of uh, background, which is you know having had a revolution and there being a kind of uh, a, a sort of uh, zombie left rhetoric that lives within the political system that has been slowly fading away for a very long time. Um, so it's it's a very different context. I mean, right now um, the the there is a the the teachers union in Mexico uh, is split into two, and one of the sides is this sort of sort of popular anarchist kind of uh, thing. And really, what they're fighting against are these uh, sort of uh, uh, education, this is punitive education reforms that are about getting teachers fired more easily, essentially. Uh, and uh, those people are really what I would see as the closest thing to a kind of left social movement, both in their discourse and in, in their aims and stuff. And you know, they're they're you know, I, I, they're fighting for something good. Uh, they, you know, their 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 rhetoric is pretty incoherent and uh they keep their distance from morena but are sort of critically supporting it and that's about it i mean i mean there's really isn't i wouldn't say there really is much of a left in in mexico what about these maoists that are in the coalition with morena oh that that, that's a that's a very interesting uh old uh episode uh this is a tiny political party that was actually founded in the 90s to weaken the prd uh it was founded with uh, sponsorship from the from the government, and it did come from seventies Maoists, uh, sort of being allowed to run uh, um, to to have to have sort of local power in different places as this party. But it, it but it's 
you know, now it's even weaker than it was. What's the name of the party? Uh, the PT, the Partido del Trabajo. Uh, it's okay. the Labor Party. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it's it's not it's not a, a very important factor. Uh, uh, I think they draw some kind of uh, support from this kind of lumpen banlieu kind of uh, uh, favela background where they have some political control. So I, I guess that's votes for for AMLO, uh, just as these uh, teachers groups are votes for AMLO. But really, whatever there is of like a, a left that calls itself socialist or or anything in Mexico right now, all that it can be at this point is a tail behind behind AMLO. And um, yeah, that's about it. Okay. Thank you, Marquito. Thank you, Marco. Bye. Talk soon. Bye. All right. Thanks, guys. That's a wrap. Let me tell y'all motherfuckers one thing right now That is that this is a bass-ass one-take Dumb-ass okay. fucking freestyle, you dumb bitch Second off, fuck politics yeah. Fuck the president Fuck YouTube, bitch uh. Fuck the president Fuck Obama, Hillary Fuck Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan I went cuckoo for the cocoa plus some blazers I don't give a fuck who the president's gonna be if it's Kanye or fucking me I'ma still fuck your bitch penitentiary Everybody know a slug is getting paid Homicidal maniac, I'm gonna rape Fuck the image, boy, I'm thinking about a million I won't run on YouTube, I'm not see about 100 million Spend some runners on the drugs, yeah, I got a problem Just get down on the fucking floor. I'ma kill y'all motherfuckers. Nobody's gonna get hurt, bitch. All of y'all just gonna get murdered. That's a just style in the back, the spinal cord. Fuck politics.